on Fuzzy Logic. We're going from the small and the big. We've got some recordings from this week's events at Pint of Science, sharing some local scientists and their stories coming up right here on your Science on a Sunday, ticking over on 2XXFM. This is Fuzzy Logic. Good morning, Canberra, and welcome to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. Joining you in the studio on this lovely 21st of May. Thank you very much to Irish Voice for the program beforehand. But now it's time for the world of science. My name is Broderick Matthews. It's a pleasure to be with you, bringing you the science on a Sunday, as we always do here at Fuzzy Logic. But this Sunday is a little different because luckily this week, Fuzzy Logic were out at the Pint of Science events. If you haven't heard of these, these are events that are run all across Australia. In fact, they started in uh, London in 2014 and they've slowly moved into Australia, into Canberra. And we are really lucky because what they are are amazing events in the pub on science. A whole bunch of scientific speakers come in and share their research, share what they're doing with people, and you can enjoy a pint at the same time. It's a pretty fantastic thing. They take place in May each year, so if you did miss out this year, I'm sorry to say, you'll have to pop it in your diary for next year. But lucky for you, Fuzzy Logic were there with our recorders and helping take part in these amazing events. So over the next few weeks, we're going to bring you some of the recordings from these pint of science ash. Uh, performances, Pint of Science Talks, and uh, and you'll be able to tune in, and we'll also podcast these as we always do, if you want to download and listen later. So, let's get straight into it. And today I said we are going from the big to the small, or the small to the big, uh, so I thought I'd start off small. And uh, I wanted to talk about the Aussie salute to start with. Do you know what the Aussie salute is? It's that brush you do in front of your face with your hand, just flicking the flies away. And I love that it's called the Aussie Salute because it just shows how synonymous flies are in the Australian way of life. We have them, uh, but it's, they're not something we really like. In fact, the, the Aussie Salute kind of shows we just put up with them. They're there, and uh, there's not much we can do about them. But some people, they like flies. They take the time out to research flies even and this is our first speaker today dr brian lassard is from csiro and he has the nickname of brian the fly guy and uh he started studying flies in his undergraduate studies at the university of wollongong looking at behavior classification moved on to do his phd at the australian national university and now at csiro he continues to research flies and uh, share his passion for them. And that's exactly what he was doing at this Pint of Science event. So let's have a listen to Bri the Fly Guy. Thanks for coming, guys. Um, as you know, my name's Dr. Brian Lassard, a.k.a. Bri the Fly Guy, and I study flies, shock horror. So I work at the Australian National Insect Collection at Black Mountain, and this is one of the collections um, that's owned by CSIRO. And we have 12 million insect specimens, and we're the world's largest collection of invertebrates from Australia, which is pretty amazing. So I literally get to play with bugs all day. 
And when you think of flies, the first one you probably think of is that annoying little bush fly that lands on your back when you go for a hike. And you probably think this is the only species that occurs in the world. But this fly is after your sweat, after your tears, after your snot, after your saliva. Because when you think about it, these are a rich source of electrolytes and fluids. So they pretty much think you're a Gatorade bottle with legs. <laughs> This is a really stupid question, but do you guys like beer? Yeah. Do you guys like wine? Yeah. Do you guys like ciders? Yeah. yeah. Do you like eating avocados and mangoes? Yeah. Do you like eating chocolate? Yeah. yeah. Well, if you wish that you lived in a world without flies, you would be kissing all these things goodbye. Flies, along with um, other insects as well, pollinate the hops that make beer, the wine, uh, the, the grapes that make wine and the pear and the apples that make uh, cider. Research um, from Queensland has shown that flies can actually carry twice as much pollen than the European honeybee, and might actually be better pollinators of the avocado and mango orchards up in Queensland too. Really? Flies, uh, you know, without flies there'd be no chocolate as well? Yeah, I'm actually deadly serious. Flies are the only known pollinator of the cocoa plant that gives us chocolate. And there's this little guy at the top right-hand corner, that's a Ceratopogonidae. It's a little uh, tiny midge fly that's about the size of a pinhead. It's the only thing small enough to crawl through these pink little flowers of the chocolate plant. So without this one insignificant species, we wouldn't have chocolate. So it is pretty significant after all. Flies are some of the most amazing pollinators in Australia and help pollinate some of Australia's most iconic plants like eucalypts, uh, tea trees and grevilleas. And pollination uh, by insects in Australia is worth about $6 billion each year in Australia alone. So they're huge drivers of our economy, but they're silent and we take them for granted. And it's quite a simple mechanism how they pollinate. They're actually attracted to the nectar in the flower, so they'll drink that using their mouth parts and the pollen will get brushed off in their beards. Of course, flies have a bad reputation, and Louis the fly isn't helping at all. Uh, when people think about maggots, they probably flash back to a crime scene uh, from a terrible show like CSI, and even Jeff Goldman needs to share some of the blame. He's ruining the reputation of flies by appearing in terrible movies like The Fly from the 80s. It's actually bad. But as you can see, flies can be downright beautiful as well. And they're quite different and diverse. There's about 9,000 species of flies that only are found in Australia. And there's 159,000 species of flies in the world. They actually represent about 10% of all the known animal life in the world as well. And we've only described about a quarter of all species. Researchers uh, hypothesize that there's still about three quarters of life on Earth to discover, um, and we haven't even begun to scratch the surface. Which brings me to this fly. Um, it's probably my favorite fly in the world. It's one that I named. Uh, it had a bright golden abdomen, but no one knew uh, anything about these horse flies. No one had studied them since the 1960s, and the researcher that used to work on them um, passed away in the 80s. So it wasn't until I started my PhD a few years ago at CSIRO where I actually started working on this group. And when I opened up the drawer of the Australian National Insect Collection, I found this bright golden abdomen that actually caught the light and it sparkled in front of me. 
And because I worked on the group, I knew it was a new species. So I picked it out, as well as the other two specimens, and put a name on it. And I named it Scaptia Beyoncé, after Beyoncé, because I thought it was pretty delicious. <laughs> the original specimen, too, was caught in 1981, the same year that Beyoncé was born. And there were only three known specimens at the time, and that's the amount of uh, members in Destiny's Child. <laughs> At least that's what I told the scientists peer-reviewing my paper. <laughs> I've also described another 18 new species of horseflies from Australia and also uh, New Zealand. Again, no one's studied the Australian horseflies in this group for about, uh, you know, 50 odd years. So new species accumulated in state um, insect collections and also the collections at CSIRO. So of course, flies undergo metamorphosis like butterflies or even uh, frogs, where they start out in an egg phase and then they hatch into a series of different molts of larvae or maggots or caterpillars. And then they enter the cocoon uh, where they undergo a significant change to become an adult and emerge as an adult later on. And you can say I started out my career in flies at the egg stage during undergraduate at University of Wollongong. I enrolled in a Bachelor of Biotechnology, so I had no idea about insects, really. But then, it wasn't until second year when I had a really passionate uh, lecture to talk about forensic entomology and how we can use maggots to solve crime. So that was like the most amazing hook ever, so I was like, yeah, great, sign me up. So I did a, a research topic with him, and that turned into honours, and then a PhD at CSIRO. And then I grew my research wings and became a postdoc uh, scientist there as well. So adult blowflies can lay their eggs on a corpse within minutes of death. So they're generally uh, regarded as pretty accurate indicators of the minimum time since death. And different species, um, of course, all look different. And they have different uh, growth rates as well. So you can actually look at the size of a maggot found on a corpse and indicate its age. And the age generally uh, tells us how long the corpse has been there for. And then you can work out the alibi in an investigation. So say we pulled off uh, this ma uh, maggot from one of the, uh, the victims from a crime scene, and then we bring it back to the lab. So it's really important to identify it down to species because different species, the larvae grow at different rates. And forensic entomologists use these profiles, these growth profiles, where you can have the age at the bottom um, uh, axis and then the length um, at the top. So at an age of zero hours, that's when the egg is immediately laid and then it'll hatch and grow in size until it reaches a peak. Um, and then that's when the larvae will stop eating it's at its maximum size and that'll start entering into pupation and then start shrinking down and then turn into the, uh, the pupa case itself at the end of the graph. So if we pulled off this uh, maggot from a crime scene and we measured it at 14 millimetres, we then consult our thermodevelopmental profiles and see how old the larvae are, depending on which species. So the species on the left, Chrysomyia rufifaces, takes about 60 hours to grow to uh, 14 millimetres in length, but its closely related species Chrysomyia megacephala on the right takes about 54 hours. 
So this is a discrepancy of up to six hours. Um, and that could be a huge discrepancy in a murder investigation when you're assessing someone's alibi. And if you use the wrong species growth uh, uh, chart um, in a criminal investigation, you could potentially cause a miscarriage of justice. So flies can be pretty significant in forensic investigations. They're also really cool um, with alternative medicine as well. Have any of you guys heard of maggot therapy? Yep. So maggot therapy is where you can actually use blowfly larvae, like uh, the sheep blowfly, Lucilia sericata, which is also a pollinator as well. And a maggot nurse, this is what they call the nurse, and she absolutely loves her job. She's smiling like crazy. The maggot nurse will actually bring uh, maggots to the patient and plant them into the wounds. And the wound could be something like a diabetic ulcer, a bed sore, or uh, even any gangrenous infections. And the larvae will only eat the rotting tissue and they'll leave the living tissue alone. And the actual uh, the wriggling of the larvae will promote uh, circulation. And they actually have antibacterial uh, properties in their saliva to help ward off secondary infection as well. So luckily for us, we're using this in Australia already at Westmead Hospital. And they're using it in the US and the UK as well. Researchers in the UK have estimated that they're saving about $2.5 billion each year by just using maggot therapy. This is because patients don't have to opt for expensive and invasive surgeries too. So a lot of my work uh, studies the evolution of these flies as well over time. And a lot of the core principles we use come back um, to Darwin himself. So I studied the genetic relationships of certain groups of flies from Australia and all over the world and see how they evolve over time. But before I start talking about phylogenetic trees, let's look to Beyonce to help to see if she can explain it. So a phylogenetic tree is a lot like a family tree. So you've got Beyonce in the center because you know she's the center of everything. And her and Jay-Z have had offspring. So she's had blue ivy a few years ago in 2011, and now she has, not that I know, uh, <laughs> blue ivy was born when I um, announced the Beyonce class, so that's a bit of trivia locked in there. So Beyonce and Jay-Z um, had blue ivy, and then they're also having two uh, twins at the moment. So this is a sister uh, relationship of sister species. And if you trace back Beyonce's ancestry to a common ancestor where she shares with Solange, it goes back to Tina and Matthew Knowles. <laughs> so phylogenetic analysis is pretty much just like a family tree. And I've done the same thing by looking at the DNA of flies. So you can see the Beyonce fly down here on the left. It's closest related to Oscillata, this species from Chile that's black um, and has a, a bright yellow uh, fringe on the abdomen. If you trace these back, they share a common ancestry with this brown fly from New Zealand. And further back in the phylogenetic tree, they share ancestry with this group with, of long mouthpart flies from uh, Africa. So this African fly is quite distantly related to these other groups that share a more recent common ancestor. And again, this is just by looking at the DNA. How many of you guys like Jurassic Park? Yeah? So I think Jurassic Park's probably the first thing that got me interested into DNA. And of course, 
the fossils were pivotal to their research. They looked at the fossils and found uh, the, the DNA of dinosaurs in the actual mosquito blood in the, uh, in the fossil. But we all know we can't actually do that um, in real life because you know the, the fossils are too old and the DNA is degraded over time, so you can't get DNA from them. Uh, a fun note too is that it wasn't actually a mosquito that they used um, in the movie. It was something called a crane fly, and these have been around for 175 million years anyway, so they were probably flying around with dinosaurs. And bloody Jeff Goldblum makes an appearance again. <laughs> But just like Jurassic Park, I'm using fossils in my research to kind of understand the evolution of flies. And if we go back to what we've learnt from um, primary school about the ancient supercontinent Gondwana, this was once um, formed of the continents we know today in the Southern Hemisphere, like Australia, Antarctica, Africa, and also South America. And they separated over time to give us the continents that we know today. And this separation of land masses has also influenced the species, actually, that live on them. And a classic example are the ratites. These birds all shared a common ancestor um, back when Gondwana um, was whole. And when the land masses separated, they all became isolated from one another and couldn't breed, so they turned into new species. So, of course, we've got the emu, emu here in Australia, We've got the ostrich in Africa, we've got the, the rio, which is much smaller in South America, and then the even smaller rio, uh, kiwi from New Zealand. The same thing is true for flies. So each continent has its own unique um, number of species of flies that are only found there, and they all have a common ancestor that dates back to Gondwana. So going back to my phylogenetic tree that I used um, that I use DNA to construct. I actually have fossil flies that are from 140 million years ago. So I'm able to place these at the ancestral node where Tina and Matthew Knowles were. <laughs> and I can actually time um, calibrate my phylogenetic tree and see how the influence of the separation of Gondwana influenced their evolution. And by doing this, I could see that the African species of fly diverged about 76 million years ago, followed by the New Zealand species of fly that diverged 53 million years ago, and then the Australian uh, Beyonce fly and the South American uh, horse fly as well diverged 44 million years ago. And this coincides with the geological time frame of these land masses as well. So flies can actually give us a really cool perspective, um, a broader perspective, to see how you know, the world works and how uh, our landforms have actually formed over time. I currently work on a group of flies called soldier flies. And don't worry if you've never heard of soldier flies. I didn't either until I started researching them. There's about 130 species of soldier fly in Australia. Um, and a handful of species are sugarcane pests. The larvae actually eat on the root systems and could be um, quite damaging. But a lot of the larvae are used as biological indicators of water quality. So if you go to a really healthy river or a river catchment and you see the soldier fly larvae wriggling in, that means it's a really healthy ecosystem. You'll probably find a lot more dragonflies and frogs and everything as well. But if you go to a polluted river, you'll notice that there's not much uh, living in there because they just won't survive. So that's one way of assessing water quality and looking at these guys. 
Soldier flies are also really cool because there's one species that's thought to become the next superfood of the 21st century, and that's this one here. This is the black soldier fly, Hermitia lucens. Uh, this fly was first described uh, hundreds of years ago, but it's only uh, been identified as something that we can use now on a global scale. And this is because the larvae in the top left have a voracious appetite and can eat anything. So one larva can eat about half a gram of organic matter per day, whether it's uh, pizza crust or uh, animal waste or anything. So researchers are actually using um, black soldier fly larvae as a way of reducing food waste. One uh, larvae can eat about a half a gram of organic matter, and one female can lay up to 600 eggs. So this uh, tight little army of soldier flies can eat an entire green waste bin in a couple of days. So imagine what a whole warehouse, or many warehouses of these little guys can do. Researchers in Costa Rica have applied black soldier flies to reduce their food waste in households by up to 75%, simply just by feeding it to them. And there's companies all over the world that are actually doing this um, at the moment. And lucky in Canberra, we have one called doTERRA that are operating out of Fishwick. And I consult with them um, as well from CSIRO. They're actually going around to commercial institutions, um, asking for the, the uh, baked goods at the end of the day that they will just throw out into the dump dumpster, or even coffee grounds from cafes, and feeding it to these black soldier flies that are happy to eat it, and they turn it into a rich source of fats, uh, amino acids, and they're actually 45% crude protein, these little guys. So they're even feeding it uh, to farm animals as well. So we're able to convert our food waste into a, a sustainable, viable, um, and alternative farm animal food too. And uh, companies all over the world are doing this right now. So it's really exciting to see that they're embracing the power of the fly to be able to kind of uh, feed the growing population essentially. So since I started studying soldier flies, uh, three years ago, I've actually discovered 150 new species. So no one has studied soldier flies since the 1920s in Australia. So a lot of people actually collected them, but they sat in museum collections or research collections over time, similar to the Beyonce fly, waiting for someone to come along with the knowledge of that particular group to identify them. So I've traveled across all of the Australian state museums and borrowed all their material and then combined it with the material we have in the Australian National Insect Collection, and I've sorted through it with the help of Dr. Norman Woodley. Now, this guy has been studying soldier flies for 40 years, and it's from the Smithsonian, so he is the bee's knees of soldier fly systematics. And he came out and visited us on a Fulbright um, scholarship earlier in the year, where he really passed down the torch and um, trains me in soldier fly um, taxonomy and classification as well. And together we were able to identify these 150 new species. So considering the black soldier fly is only one species, imagine what happens when we describe all these new species and see if we can have similar applications with them as well. Of course, one of the major perks of my job is being able to go to these amazing locations and sample the insects' uh, biodiversity. And I was really, um, I was really chuffed last year where I was approached um, by Australian Geographic to co-lead their citizen science expedition to Lord Howe Island with other scientists from the Australian National Insect Collection. 
And you don't have to be a full-blown researcher to understand uh, or even study insects. And we had 20 citizen scientists that came along and we actually uh, surveyed the entire island and together we, uh, together we discovered two new species of soldier fly in five days. And just having um, the citizen scientists actually help me in the field was a, a godsend. And one of the new species, um, I'm, I'm thinking of describing it, uh, oh, I'm going to describe it, but I think I'm going to name it Osteorum, which means uh, Ost for Australian, Geo for Geographic, and Aurum, which is in the Latin for a group of people. So it literally means Australian Geographic volunteers, essentially. So collecting fresh specimens is really important too because we need fresh specimens to get their DNA um, and analyze it and put it in our phylogenetic trees. So I hope that I convinced you uh, that flies are useful. Um, not only are they super beautiful, but they help clean our wounds, pollinate our flowers, and even give us chocolate. And even Jeff Goldblum has come around and loves flies as well. So push down the fly spray, pick up your beer, and raise a glass to wonderful biodiversity, and let's get maggot. <laughs> That was excellent. Thank you very much. Now, we do have some time for questions. So, does anyone have any questions for Bri? Right up the front. Does Beyonce know? Does Beyonce know? We actually approached Beyonce before we um, put out the media release to the, the fly. I already published the paper, so there was no way the name could get changed. <laughs> And um, we approached her at the time and asked you know, if she had any comment or anything, but of course they never um, responded to us. But I have a journalist friend since I did um, the TEDx talk last year, and she hounded Beyonce's um, team. She sent them emails, she stalked them on Facebook trying to get a comment. And um, their only comment was, we have no comment, followed by two B emoticons. <laughs> To which I said, uh, does she even know it's a fly? So, uh. Another round of applause for the fly to fly, guys. And that was Dr. Brian Assad there from CSIRO sharing his opinion on flies at the latest part of science event. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic. The Griswolds there with their cover of Riptide. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic. This is Broderick Matthews, and today I'm sharing with you some of our recordings from the Pint of Science events that took place around Canberra this week. Scientists sharing their research in pubs. What a way to do it. I think we should share more things in pubs. The second scientist we have today is Professor Naomi McClure-Griffiths. She's made her way to Australia via the US with a PhD at the University of Minnesota, and Naomi likes to study the galaxy. Now, I don't know about you, but if you imagine mapping the neighbourhood around you, it would be pretty difficult to do it from the ground. We have some fantastic satellite imagery that we can use now to see above our area and uh, be able to draw a map of where we are. But Naomi has to try her best to try and map the galaxy of the Milky Way whilst being right inside it here on Earth. Let's have a listen to Naomi and uh, how she goes about mapping the Milky Way. 
Thank you. Everybody can hear me? All good? I'm used to speaking to audiences that are not lubricated with alcohol, so I, I figure this is either going to be a fantastic success or an absolute disaster. Uh, so we'll see how we go. So I want to take you on a little walk around the neighborhood, uh, that being the Milky Way neighborhood, a little bit broader than Canberra City or Turner or somewhere close by. Um, and I'm going to take you through the neighborhood with the type of telescopes that I use, which are telescopes like these up here, which are radio telescopes. So it's sort of appropriate that we just had a, an introduction about CSIRO. CSIRO is a world leader in radio telescopes. It's with CSIRO that I have done a lot of my work. And it's because of work on radio astronomy that Wi-Fi was invented by John O'Sullivan. So it's all wrapped up in radio astronomy. I'm sure it's the answer to all of the world's problems. Um, so let me uh, get started. So the wonderful thing about uh, looking at the Milky Way, as I do in my day job and my night job, is that it's something that everybody can see. So hopefully, unless you have no vision, uh, you have seen the Milky Way. Who has not seen the Milky Way? Good. Okay. The Milky Way, you walk outside, you look up, there it is, right? Can't miss it. It's there everywhere around you. But what is the Milky Way? So we learn in school, we learn that we live here on Earth and we're part of a solar system and that solar system is part of a galaxy and that galaxy is the galaxy that we live in the Milky Way. Named because it's this nice band of whiteness across the sky, so it's sort of milky, and that's the band that we call the Milky Way. This is not the Milky Way. Just in case you were worried, that is not the Milky Way. Um, however, it is Milky Way-like, and that's why we talk about it. So the Milky Way is a very thin disk of stars with dust and gas and various other things in it surrounded by a bowl of stars, but most of the stuff is in a thin disk. It's like a DVD in its dimensions. It's really, really thin and really big across. In fact, the aspect ratio is almost exactly the same as a DVD. You just have to multiply it by factors of many, many millions in order to get up to the size of the Milky Way. So it's about a thousand light years thick in its stars, which is very small. So the thickness here, meaning the, the that, and there's about um, 700 billion times the mass of the sun inside the Milky Way. So a lot of zeros there. There's only 100 billion stars. And in fact, um, the mass in the stars is only about 50 billion times the mass of the sun. Most of the mass that's in the Milky Way is not in stars, it's not in gas, it's not in dust. It's in dark matter. Dark matter makes up 90% of the mass of the Milky Way. And then there's this piddly little 10% left over that we look at. So when we get really excited about all the things that we're seeing in the Milky Way, we're actually not seeing much of anything. Because everything else is dark and we don't know what that is. Before you ask me, what is dark matter? I don't know. Um, neither does anybody else. And if they tell you they do, they're lying. So don't believe them. Okay, so that's what the Milky Way would look like. Side on, this is what the Milky Way would look like if we could fly up above it and look down. And if we could do that, my job would be done. I would be out of a career immediately. 
But fortunately, we can't, and so I'm allowed to continue guessing about what the Milky Way looks like based on small pieces of evidence. So the Milky Way probably looks like this. It's a spiral-type galaxy, so it's uh, in spirals, pinwheels out. It has a bar at the center, just like this. Here we are in a bar. Perfect. has a bar at the center. This one's got a lot of stars in it, and we sit, unfortunately, not at the bar. We sit about 24,000 light years away out here in the sort of suburbs. There's not many drinks out there. It's kind of a dull place to live. The entire galaxy is about 100,000 light years across. So there's about 1,000 light years in its thickness and 100,000 light years across. So it really is like a compact disk. Really, really thin, really, really flat. And the flatness is the reason why when you look up, you look at a band of stars. It's like you're sitting in that compact disk looking along the edge of it. And you can see that band of stars stretching across the sky. Okay, so this is what we think the Milky Way looks like. And it's put together by doing a whole bunch of different types of observations where we map out where some stars are and we try to put it together. But really, it could look completely different than this and we don't know yet. So until such time as we can fly up above it and look down, we're just stitching together little bits and pieces trying to guess. So one of the things that we argue about, for example, is that each one of these things is called a spiral arm. We think the Milky Way has four spiral arms, but it might have two. So it might be half as empty as that, or it might have three spiral arms, or it might not really have very clear spiral arms at all. So all of these sort of things are the things we argue about when we talk about the Milky Way. Okay, so I said everybody can see the Milky Way, which is true, and it probably looks to you not quite as good as this if you look at it from Canberra, but it does look nice. Step outside of town, look up in the sky, this is what it would look like. So the center of the Milky Way is here. These black blobs along here, that's dust. It's dust that blocks out the starlight. And it's not like the stuff that I have to clean out from underneath the bed. Um, it's not anything like dust that you know. It's more like smoke particles. Uh, but it blocks the light so that, in fact, when we look at the Milky Way like this, we're only seeing about 6,000 light years away from us. But the Milky Way stretches 100,000 light years away from us. And so if you want to be able to see more of it, you're better off not using visual light, but using some other sort of thing. So while this is how you see the Milky Way, this is how I see the Milky Way. This is how I see the Milky Way with a radio telescope, Parks radio telescope specifically. Anybody been out to Parks and seen the dish? Yay! Still the most beautiful radio telescope in the world, in my humble opinion. So. The Parkes Radio Telescope allows us to detect the gas in the galaxy. So instead of looking at the stars, we look at the gas. And the space between the stars is filled with gas. And it's from that gas that the stars are formed. And in fact, when the stars die, they go back to that gas. But it's the gas that's the sort of key element of it. It's like the atmosphere. So and we just spent a lot of time talking about the atmosphere for the Earth even though the atmosphere for the Earth is 
you know, a tenth of a hundredth of a percent of the total mass of the Earth. It's a tiny, tiny fraction of it. But it's the part that conveys all the information from one place to another. Weather systems move around. That's how you get you know, water from over here to over there by taking it through the atmosphere. And in a galaxy, it's the gas that acts like the atmosphere. It's what carries information from one part of a galaxy to another part of a galaxy. So that stars over here know that stars over there once lived and vice versa. So this is in particular is hydrogen gas. And physicists love hydrogen. It's very simple. One proton, one electron. We can handle that. You go any more complicated than that and it's called chemistry and we don't go there. Um, so we, we stick with very simple things like hydrogen. And after all, hydrogen is the most basic element and it's from which everything in the universe came. So before there were us, before there were complex stars, there was hydrogen and all the stars formed out of that hydrogen and moved on. So hydrogen will stick with that. And we can see hydrogen with a radio telescope uh, because it's a very beautiful thing. It has its own radio channel. It has a radio channel at 1400 megahertz, somewhere between where your mobile phone is and your microwave uh, sits our beautiful radio channel. And our radio channel allows us to tune in and see where all the gas is. And so that's what we're looking at here. So we have the Milky Way disk here, the center of the galaxy over here. Anybody know what these things are? Big blobs up there. Yes. Well done. You win a prize. Well, I don't have a prize, but you would win it. Uh, those are the Magellanic Clouds. Well, the Magellanic Clouds are the nearest galaxies to us. They're our little galactic friends. They're the sort of, you know, nice little friends that don't bother us too much out there. And we can see them from the southern hemisphere. And these are what they look like in gas. So this is the large Magellanic Cloud and the small Magellanic Cloud. So that's how I study the Milky Way, is to study the gas in it. So the interstellar matter is about 10% of the visible matter in the Milky Way. And just to give you some sort of statistics for it, the typical densities are less than, usually less than, one atom per cubic centimeter. So here's your cubic centimeter, one atom in it. By comparison, the air that you're all breathing in right now has 10 to the 19 molecules in a cubic centimeter. That's that many zeros. Compared with, at most, a million atoms in the uh, interstellar gas. So if you were to run from here to the nearest star with a butterfly net the size of a football field, you would collect one gram of material. There's not a lot out there. And yet, it's very fun to study. So most of that is hydrogen. Uh, and most of that tells us about what's happening in a galaxy. So we use tools like this. Uh, so these, this is the Australian SKA Pathfinder. So this is being built in Western Australia right now by CSIRO. And this is a radio telescope designed to study hydrogen in the universe and other things. But hydrogen is the part that we care about. And we'll study the Milky Way. And when we use a radio telescope, this is the sort of thing that we produce. A beautiful movie of 
froth on beer. <laughs> or, in fact, a beautiful movie of hydrogen gas. So what we're doing right now is stepping through the Milky Way. And the disk of the Milky Way is here. And all of this bubbly, frothy mess here is stuff that's been stirred up by the motions that are happening inside our galaxy. Motions that go anywhere from 1,000 kilometers per second. So 1,000 kilometers per second. You drive your car down the Chuggernong Parkway at 100 kilometers per hour, or if you're one of those hoons, it's 135 kilometers per hour. But nonetheless, it is nowhere near 1,000 kilometers per second. So the, the gas that's moving around inside a galaxy is moving really, really fast, stirred up by big energetic explosions. And all of that gas goes through uh, a sort of um, water cycle for galaxies. Who learned about the water cycle for Earth at school? Okay. Well, just take that same thing and translate it to a galaxy where water is gas. And that's the, all they have to do. So water is gas, and it moves around, and it gets perfectly recycled. So gas has to come in, and that gas becomes dense, and it forms stars. And then those stars die in spectacular explosions, supernovae, where they drive gas away from them at 10,000 kilometers per second. And then those form big, huge bubbles and they blow gas out of the galaxy so that's the stuff that goes way up high in the atmosphere and then it condenses down and it comes back around but the water cycle for the milky way or the gas cycle is not perfect it's not a perfect recycler some little bit of gas every time a star is formed is locked up forever so that it can't form any more stars so gas goes around, here's gas, it forms a molecular cloud, it forms some stars, those stars explode, and they might leave behind a white dwarf or a black hole. And that white dwarf or that black hole does nothing useful for the universe besides sit there and cool for the rest of eternity. It's just completely useless. And with it, it's taken away some of the gas from the galaxy, so that now there's not as much gas as there was. And every time the gas goes around this cycle, it loses almost half of its mass. So not all of it keeps in there. So we have to keep on feeding the galaxy. So unlike the Earth, there is actual, the water cycle has something else coming in. It's like water's coming in from outer space. So in the Milky Way, gas has to come in, in the form of galactic food. So the galactic food could be anything. It could be fish and chips, a glass of beer, uh, you know, some cheese curds if you're from Minnesota, whatever. Um, and this is an example of a bar snack for the Milky Way. This is just a little itty bitty snack, something you might have like small is. So this is the Milky Way. This cloud of gas here is incoming into the Milky Way. This is actual gas cloud. And that gas cloud is carrying about a million times the mass of the sun with it. So it's a million times more massive than the sun. And it's traveling at about 864,000 kilometers per hour. And in something like 30 million years, a little bit of time for the galaxy, not really much at all, it's going to crash into the Milky Way. And the Milky Way is going to go, thank you. 
feels good. And that's a little snack, and it keeps forming stars after that. So once you bring in a little snack, you can keep forming stars in the galaxy. It's at the moment about 8,000 light years away, so it's going to take, you know, 30 million years to get here, but it won't be all that far away. And this is what it'll look like when it crashes in. And believe it or not, when it crashes in, nothing will happen. <laughs> Nobody will know. It will just become extra food that the galaxy can turn into stars. Um, now, it, it is a fairly energetic thing. And just to compare, um, how many people have a pint of beer? Good, good, good. Okay. Well, you've got uh, about 700,000 joules of energy in that pint of beer. If you had some fish and chips, as my husband did, um, then you had about two and a half million joules of energy. And um, this one is going to get that many joules of energy coming in. So it's a little bit more than the snacks that you've had, but then again, the Milky Way is a little bit bigger than you, so it's all fair. For comparison, the annual Australian energy usage is that many zeros in joules. So even still, it's a lot of energy coming in. But this is just what we would call a snack. It really is a tiny thing that won't keep the galaxy going for very long. Because the galaxy requires about one sun per year coming into it. This one's going to deliver a million suns when it comes in. But we only get these every hundred million years or so. So they don't come around all that often. We need a bigger meal. A bigger meal is a bit of galactic cannibalism. So the large Magellanic Cloud and the small Magellanic Cloud will be cannibalized by our galaxy at some point. They will come in to the Milky Way and provide a little bit of gas that we can keep forming stars out of. About 500 million times the mass of the sun will come in through the Magellanic Clouds. But they only happen once. And then we have to wait for another billion years or more for another mid-sized meal. So the meals are few and far between, and the Milky Way hopefully keeps itself alive on little snacks. And my job actually is to find those snacks. So I'm sort of like a snack hunter for the galaxy. Now, I said that this gas, does some of it gets locked up in white dwarfs and black holes. Some of it also gets ejected via galactic burps. A little bit uncouth, the galaxy is. Every now and then it sort of spews out uh, a little bit of extra gas. And that gas goes out of the Milky Way and is lost forever. Um, so, let's talk about what galactic burps are. They're not what you have after a beer. Um, they tend to be in the center of galaxies, like this one is an example from M82. It's a beautiful galaxy here, and this red stuff is the galactic burp. It's actually the powerhouse of the galaxy. It's an immense amount of material that's been swirling around the black hole at the center of that galaxy. And it swirls in and then gets spewed out in this fantastically energetic event that makes this all of the atmosphere around that galaxy know that it was there. It really lets itself be known. And for a long time, we've wondered about whether we had something like this in the Milky Way. As you can see these in other galaxies, 
in some ways it's easier to see other galaxies than our own because you can look at them sort of at a distance, get a full view of it, but we're stuck in the middle of ours trying to figure out what it looks like. And so for a long time people have argued about whether there was a, a powerhouse at the center of the Milky Way. And a few years ago, uh, back in 2010, the Fermi satellite found evidence for the Milky Way's powerhouse, and it's called the Fermi Bubbles. Did anybody come across the Fermi Bubbles? We do all this work, nobody knows. That's why we stand up here. So the Fermi Bubbles are fairly remarkable. They're 50,000 light years across. They're powered by gas that is 10 to 100 million times the 10 to 100 million Kelvin, so 10 to the or 100 million degrees gas, very very hot gas, um, and they're being inflated at hundreds of kilometers per second by something at the center of the Milky Way, but we don't know what. They may be powered by a lot of very massive stars, stars that are 10 times as massive as the, the sun that have been spewing out their gas and pushing things around. Or they may be powered by the spiraling in of gas onto the black hole at the center. But we don't know. Um, but we only found them seven years ago, so we've got a few years to figure out the answer. Um, but they are pretty remarkable gamma ray emitting and, in fact, X-ray emitting features. Uh, and more recently, the Parkes telescope found them to be emitting at radio wavelengths as well as these blue blobby thingies sticking up here. So by studying these, we can understand what's happening at the very center of the Milky Way. What's going on as the gas spirals around the black hole, how many stars are forming by looking at what kind of stuff gets burped out from the center of the galaxy. So I'm not supposed to talk for very long, so I'm going to just finish up by telling you very quickly about what's next for the Milky Way. Um, so what's next for the Milky Way is this great, wonderful telescope, which as Australians we are extremely lucky to be co-hosting this telescope. So this is the Square Kilometer Array. Who has heard of the Square Kilometer Array? Yes, good, 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 good. I always feel like we're doing our job when people have heard about the Square Kilometer Array. So this will be one of Australia's enormous infrastructure projects. Um, it's part of an international project to build a billion euro telescope in remote Western Australia and in South Africa with the goal of seeing back to the very beginning of the universe and being able to also test things like, is general relativity correct? Did Einstein know what he was on about, or was he making stuff up? Um, and also, for my own type of field, to be able to understand the Milky Way. So we'll be using this telescope in Western Australia and South Africa. So these are the two places where it's being built. South Africa, I was just there a few weeks ago. Western Australia, haven't been to it for a long time. We build radio telescopes where people are not. That's the key point. So the population density where this is being built in Western Australia is 0 0.002 people per square kilometer. It's a population of 150 people in the size, area the size of the Netherlands. Nobody is there, and that's good, because it means that they're not holding things like this, Bluetooth, or mobile phones, or digital TVs, 
or microwaves or any of the horrible things that we all bring around with us, which emit radio frequency emissions, which are far stronger than anything that we see with our radio telescopes coming from the universe. The entire history of radio astronomy has collected as much energy as a snowflake hitting the ground in its whole history from the universe. But I was observing with the Australia Telescope Compact Array today, and I was seeing a million times that much coming in from satellites. So we build telescopes where people are not, and we try to avoid satellites so that we can actually see what's going on. And the square kilometer array will be invaluable for basically putting on your reading glasses and seeing what the Milky Way looks like. So for those of you who have reached the age like I have where you get your first pair of reading glasses and you discover that suddenly you can see, that's what it's going to be like for us when we get the square kilometer array. We can suddenly see in detail and we turn the blobby mess that is the Milky Way into something that's in focus. And I'll finish up there. But thank you. And that was Professor Naomi McClure-Griffiths talking about her role in mapping the Milky Way, sharing that at Pine of Science, which happened down at King O'Malley's Pub early this week uh, in Canberra, along with a couple of other venues at the Duxton and Griffins in Griffith. We've got more recordings of Pine of Science that will come to you throughout this year as we share some of these amazing scientists' work. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic. 